I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. I'm going back into the archives and re-releasing some of my favorite conversations from years ago every Friday. Unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you are, you just may get something completely different from listening to it this time around. Here you go and enjoy the show. We, we adults greatly overestimate the degree to which we are astute in our knowledge of what's really getting in a kid's way. And so what this model forces us to do, I mean, if you want to collaborate with a kid, you're going to have to listen to the kid. And you're going to have to take the kid's concerns into account. And no, that's not going to cause you to lose authority. It's going to help you pick up authority. Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. My guest is someone I've been wanting to have on the show since before I even aired episode one. Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green is a powerful voice in the movement to change the way children, and in particular, differently wired children, are treated. Many parents in the Tilt community know him as the author of The Explosive Child, a new approach for understanding and parenting easily frustrated, chronically inflexible children. But he's also the author of Lost at School and his most recent book, Raising Human Beings, a speaker and curriculum developer and the originator of the Collaborative and Proactive Solutions model. This model helps parents and teachers and kids work together to solve problems in a way that respects our kids while supporting them and improving their behavior. Dr. Green is also the founder of Lives in the Balance, which aims to provide resources and programs to caregivers of behaviorally challenging kids, address the issues that cause many of these kids to slip through the cracks, and to promote practices that foster the better side of human nature in all children. This was definitely one of my all-time favorite interviews I've ever done for the show. Dr. Green generously shared so much wisdom and insight for us. I hope you enjoy the episode. And before I get to our conversation, two quick things. 
I often hear from listeners that they love listening to these expert interviews and they sometimes aren't sure where to start or how to apply the strategies in their own lives. Other listeners want to know more about how I apply the principles in our family. So this week, I'm launching a new after the show video series, two to three minute videos where I highlight key takeaways or give you tips about how to take what you've learned and make it work for your family. So after you've listened to this episode, go to tiltparenting.com slash after the show to watch the first video where I share three tips for how we use Dr. Green's approach in our family and sign up to get new episodes of the podcast and after the show series delivered to your inbox each week. Secondly, I have a special favor to ask. I get emails from parents every day telling me that they've just discovered the podcast and are so grateful to have found it because for the first time they feel understood or hopeful or like they found their tribe. So if you're in community with other parents who are also raising atypical kids, maybe a Facebook group, or maybe you just know of a few friends who would benefit from this episode and this podcast in general, I would love it if you could share this episode with them. My goal is to spread these important messages far and wide and grow the community of parents like us looking to change the way our kids experience the world. Thank you so much for helping me. All right, that's enough of the intro. Let's get on with the show. Hey, Dr. Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, it is really just an honor to have you on the show. I think I mentioned this in my email to you when I first reached out about having you on the show, but your book, The Explosive Child, may very well have rescued our family. I bought it when my son, who's now 13, was five. And it just helped us so much and gave us a plan and a way to move forward at a time when we just were feeling completely lost about how to handle this intense, inflexible human being. So I just want to thank you for that. And I know that so many people in the Tilt community, you know, were raising differently wired kids. And so this is a super important topic for them. And I'm just thrilled to be able to share your wisdom today. I'm glad people are finding the work to be helpful. So helpful. And there's so much to cover. And your work, just since that time, since I discovered you, you've done so many things. So we'll cover as much as we can today. But before we get started, would you mind giving us an introduction to who you are and what you do in the world? Well, I'm a child psychologist. I am officially based in Portland, Maine, although it feels like I'm not here uh, very much. And, uh, you know, I've written some books that people... um, Know Me By, The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Lost and Found, Raising Human Beings. What I spend most of my time doing is either consulting to schools or therapeutic facilities or running the nonprofit that I uh, founded in 2009 called Lives in the Balance and um, pursuing all of the things that Lives in the Balance is doing to try to make things better for kids and their caregivers. Yeah, you must have a very busy life just with all the books and the the talks and such a generous body of work. I was just referring a parent last night who called me kind of in desperate straits and had her check out just the content you have on your lives and the balance site that's for parents. There's so much there. And one of the things I'd like to talk about today is your collaborative and proactive solutions framework. That was my introduction to your work. That was kind of the game changer for us. So could you introduce listeners to that concept and and how it works and how it can work in their families? 
Sure. Well, it begins with the recognition based on the research that's accumulated over the last 40 to 50 years that kids with behavioral challenges are lacking some very important skills. The traditional way of thinking had them lacking motivation, but lagging skills is what the research tells us is really going on. And those lagging skills, uh, especially in the realms of flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving, make it very difficult for the kid to meet certain expectations. And when we are placing those expectations on kids, they tend to exhibit their challenging behavior. In, in uh, the collaborative and proactive solutions model, unmet expectations are referred to as unsolved problems. And the goal of helping a kid like this and his caregivers is to first figure out what the kid's lagging skills are so that we have the right lenses on and so that we stop saying things like attention-seeking, manipulative, coercive, unmotivated limit testing and start seeing the kid through the prism of lagging skills and also identify what expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting. Once again, those are called unsolved problems. Uh, what we find is that helps people get organized, decide what their priorities are, what problems they want to solve now, what problems they're not going to solve now that they're going to set aside. And then uh, we help caregivers start solving problems with kids, but we have them do it in a way uh, collaboratively instead of unilaterally and proactively instead of emergently that we find works a whole lot better. And the whole collaborative piece means that uh, the caregivers aren't on their own. They aren't the lone ranger. Uh, they've got a partner, the kid. And this is how kids learn a lot of the skills that they're lacking. It's how we engage kids in solving the problems that affect their lives. It's how we improve relationships. It's how we improve communications. And it's how we significantly reduce challenging behavior. Any problem that is solved is not going to cause challenging behavior. It's only the unsolved ones that cause challenging behavior. So much of this, too, as you're talking and that idea of referring to things as lagging skills and unsolved problems brings to mind one of the phrases, which I think I paraded around after school and first grade that, you know, kids do well when they can, you know, a lot of this is about reframing and changing the way we're thinking. And it's incredible how powerful just that little shift of considering this as an unsolved problem versus, you know, as you said, manipulation or even a behavioral problem, it makes a huge difference. It, uh, the, the changing of lenses is a huge part of this model because, um, you know, a lot of people focus on behavior instead of the problems that are causing that behavior. They focus on modifying the behavior instead of on solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. That is a very, very big shift for a lot of people. But we've also been thinking for a very long time that a kid who isn't doing well, it must be because he doesn't want to do well. And boy, you know, I've worked with about 2,000 behaviorally challenging kids at this point in my career. I haven't come across a one of them who didn't want to do well. So you're right. You, you brought up probably the key theme of the model, which is kids do well if they can. If this kid could do well, he would do well. And as I'm always saying, the biggest favor you can do a kid who's not doing well is to take off your old lenses and start figuring out what this kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems are. And that's what gets the whole ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, 
For me, I was surprised in in the school system how few educators were perceiving kids in that way. And to me, it really was kind of not the golden ticket, but it, it turns everything into an opportunity. What can this child learn in this situation? What is he or she lacking that he needs to work on? And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great, great reframe. Well, and it, you know, it takes us away from our habit. And a lot of school discipline programs are based on this, but so are a lot of the way many people parent. Um, You're not relying on consequences anymore. You are relying on problem solving. And so it completely changes the role of the caregiver in this kid's life. I, I find that there are many, many caregivers who have what I call consequences on the brain. The minute they see a challenging behavior, the first thing they think of to do is apply a consequence. But in the CPS model, behavior is just the signal, just the fever, just the way the kid is communicating. I'm stuck. There are expectations I'm having difficulty meeting. So as you said, uh, that's not necessarily time to kick in with the consequences, since in all likelihood, the kid already knows what behavior you'd prefer that he exhibit instead, and what behaviors you are not so keen on. I'm betting he's been clear on that for a very long time. The opportunity is in viewing the behavior as the signal and figuring out what's really going on, what unsolved problem preceded that behavior, and how can we work together with this kid to try to get that problem solved. Could you explain a little bit about the difference between the proactive approach, which is, I think, I was flipping through my well-born copy of The Explosive Child today and realized that that's really the one we continue to use the most is getting ahead of problems, but also the in-the-moment problems, you know, how how you can use the collaborative problem-solving approach in in those two different ways. Well, 99% of the problem-solving you want to be doing is proactive and planned. And that's made possible by the fact that these unsolved problems I've been talking about, whether it's difficulty brushing teeth before bed or difficulty getting to bed on time at night or difficulty waking up for school in the morning or difficulty getting the math homework done or difficulty taking out the garbage on Tuesdays or difficulty getting away from the screen to come in for dinner, whatever the unsolved problems are, they're highly predictable. What I find is that families, but also classroom teachers, are um, having are finding that these unsolved problems are the same every day, every week, every month. And the nice thing about that is that it makes them predictable. If they're predictable, then we can make a list of them before we do anything else. We can decide which ones we want to work on now and which ones we want to work on at another point. And then we can start solving those problems proactively. So uh, one of the big shifts in the model that has occurred since the explosive child came out in 1998, which um, is coming up on 20 years ago, doesn't seem quite that long, but uh, it has been, um, is that the original version of the explosive child was written primarily about what you do in the heat of the moment. But the model has evolved since then to be primarily 99% of the problem solving we ought to be doing is planned and proactive. So while there is a place for trying to solve a problem in the heat of the moment, it's actually not the best timing because we've added heat and rush to the mix. The option is there if you need it, but the whole goal 
is for people not to need it. So we'd rather have people be in crisis prevention mode than crisis management mode. But the bottom line is it's a whole lot easier to solve a problem proactively than it is in the heat of the moment. So with those proactive solutions, I'm remembering that when we were doing them a lot, you know, in those more explosive years, that I found that sometimes the solution we'd come up with would work for a while, and then it stops working. Is that pretty? And then you have to go back in and say, okay, we need to come up with another plan. Is that pretty typical? I would say that that's kind of real life. Um, There are solutions that stand the test of time forever, but I don't come across them too often. Uh, Sometimes things change and um, people's concerns change and we need different solutions that will address them as concerns evolve. Kids change, kids develop, what we want from them changes and develops. Um, But I think that um, generally speaking, if a solution doesn't work. It's usually either because it wasn't as realistic as we thought it was in the first place. And that's one of the two important criteria for coming up with a good solution. It's got to be realistic. The other criteria is that it has to be mutually satisfactory, meaning it truly addresses the concerns of both parties. As I'm always saying, if a solution isn't realistic and mutually satisfactory, then this problem is not yet solved. But it is not uncommon in real life, as well as when you're solving problems collaboratively, that a solution doesn't last forever. It just lasts for a while, and you got to go back to the drawing board and talk about it again. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones. Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. 
Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. I think that's such a good reminder. So many of us, we kind of work through these stages or we have a regression or our child has a regression rather, and we get through it and we're like, oh, phew, we're past that. Now we can move on. But I think there's a tendency to one thing is to go back to where we know, right? We well, we already solved this problem. You know, this shouldn't be an issue anymore. So that's a great reminder that our kids are always evolving and our expectations of them as they age are going to evolve as well. So it makes sense that we need to continue being flexible about the way we're going to solve certain problems. Yeah, I mean, just an example, let's say there's a solution for a homework problem that's working in the third grade based on what was making it hard for the kid to do homework in the third grade. And then we think we've got that problem solved, and then we have homework problems again in the fourth grade, but they are the issues that are making homework difficult in the fourth grade are very different than the issues that were making homework difficult in the third grade, seemingly the same unsolved problem, but different issues making it difficult for the kid to meet our expectations. Um, In those kinds of scenarios, it's hard to imagine why the solution that worked for us in the third grade is going to work for us in the fourth grade, since it's really a completely different unsolved problem. Right, right. In terms of age, is there an age that is too young to start using CPS? Or what, what have you found? Is there kind of a sweet spot in terms of the age range this works best with? Well, I think that doing it formally tends to begin in kids who can actually start participating in language. And for a lot of kids, that's at around somewhere in the age of two range. Um, but the reality is, is that you start collaborating with an infant. Um, infants have unsolved problems. Infants have concerns about those unsolved problems. And we do apply solutions that we hope will address the problem with infants, but we are also completely dependent on the infant to give us feedback about how we're doing. So the reality is you start collaborating from the word go. Um, It's just that when words kick in, it makes the process a little bit easier because now the kid can actually tell you what's the matter instead of guessing like we have to do with infants or like we sometimes have to do with kids who have no language um, even later on. Um, But I think you start collaborating with kids uh, right the minute they pop out. I love that. And I can imagine there are people listening who are thinking, oh, crap, like I have not been doing this all along. And I remember one of the parent coaches my husband and I worked with said very gently to us when Asher was maybe seven or eight, you know, you've been doing some accidental parenting, you've gotten into some habits that we want to change. Um, what would you say to parents who realize that they have been doing a authoritarian approach, right? And they want to switch gears. Is that something you 
just change right away? Do you talk with your child about it? How do you approach that? Well, you could do it either way. I, I would say no time like the present. And my bet is that the kid will be very pleasantly surprised by the different tack. Um, I think we have to remember that if the only people who can come up with good solutions are the adults, the kid never learns how. If we're not listening to a kid about what's getting in the way on a particular unsolved problem, and we are just um, figuring it out on our own, what I call mind reading, which none of us are very good at. And if all we're doing is busy imposing solutions, then, um, you know, we really have to take a step back and say, are we really preparing this kid for the real world? Am I willing to sacrifice my relationship with my kid to do things in this way? So I think that there's room for parents who are, of course, very busy, just like all of us. There's something nice about taking a step away from parenting, getting a 10,000-foot view, and actually asking, what, what role do I want to play in the life of my kid? How, how, what demeanor do I want to have? What stance do I want to take in my interactions with my kid? I think that for many parents, the authoritarian approach is the way they were raised. And a lot of them thought that was their only option. Um, but there is another option. You, you can be collaborative instead of being unilateral. And I think that it's in the vast majority of cases, most parents feel like it's giving them the kind of relationship with their kid while maintaining influence, which is quite frankly the best you can shoot for. Um, they're, they're getting what they want when they're, and more when they are solving problems collaboratively instead of unilaterally. So I don't come across any parents who say, you know, this collaboration stuff, it, it ruined my relationship with my kid. And things have gone completely to hell since we started doing it. Um, it's actually uh, exclusively the reverse. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, hearing you say that, it does sound ridiculous. And I mean, I think that's what I love about the model so much and what has really transformed and continues to really influence the dynamic between Asher and my husband and I is that it is so rooted in respect. It is such a respectful way to be. It reminds us that there's always a reason, right? There's always a reason why our child is acting the way that they do, or they're responding to something in a way that may seem too big or, or whatever. So I, that's, I love that about the model. And uh, it's just a great reminder. Well, one of the things it does is it says that the best source of information on what's getting in the kid's way on an expectation he or she is having difficulty meeting is the kid, not us. Um, we, we adults greatly overestimate the degree to which we are astute in our knowledge of what's really getting in a kid's way. And so what this model forces us to do, I mean, if you want to collaborate with a kid, you're going to have to listen to the kid and you're going to have to take the kid's concerns into account. And no, that's not going to cause you to lose authority. It's going to help you pick up authority. But as I'm always saying, the least fallible source of information on what's getting in a kid's way on an unsolved problem is the kid. So that means we got to have our ears wide open. It means the kid's voice is going to be heard but it does not mean we're going to be losing authority or influence in the life of this kid. Before we move on, I want to talk about some of your more recent books, but could you briefly describe the concept of plan A, plan B, and plan C, just for parents who are learning about this concept for the first time? Sure. What I wrote about in The Explosive Child for the first time back in 1998 
was that there's basically three ways to approach an unsolved problem. And I call those three ways plan A, plan B, and plan C. Plan C is where you are setting aside a particular unmet expectation for now. And that's where you're prioritizing because there are many behaviorally challenging kids, of course, who have accumulated many unmet expectations over time. And you're not going to be able to work on them all at once. You're only going to be able to work on two or three at any given point in time. And so there is, especially in the in kids who I work with who are very unstable or very volatile or very reactive, something to be said for setting aside a bunch of unmet expectations for now. It's very stabilizing. It, it clears the smoke. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, I like it a lot better than using medication to stabilize a kid. So I'll take plan C over meds any day when I can get away with it. Um, so that's plan C, but mostly it's about prioritizing. It's basically saying we've got a lot of fish to fry here. Um, you know, a lot of unmet expectations have accumulated over time. We know we're not going to be able to work on them all at once. So let's pick our top two or three and start working on those. That leaves us with only A and B. Both plan A and plan B represent the ways to solve the problem, but there is one massive difference between them. With plan A, you're solving the problem unilaterally. Uh, which is where the adult decides what the solution is and imposes it on the kid. Plan B is where you're solving the problem collaboratively. Plan B is a partnership between you and the kid. And plan B, you and the kid are teammates. It's where you're working together on solving the problem. As I always say, any problem that you could try to solve using plan A could far more productively be solved using plan B. So I have been spending most of my waking hours over the last 20 years teaching parents and educators and staff in therapeutic facilities how to do Plan B and trying to come up with all kinds of ways to make sure that this information gets into the hands of anybody who needs it, which, of course, is also what brings us to the Lives in the Balance website, where all of those vast resources are free. Great. Thank you so much for explaining that. It's so exciting to hear it from you. And, um, and it's just all makes so much sense. And I'm sure it's going to be so useful to our listeners. I would love to talk just a little bit about your book lost at school. I'm curious to know about what the response to that, you know, lost at school, I know, introduced a new approach to handling kids with behavioral challenges in school. And I know many of us end up pulling our kids out of school to homeschool because we just can't find a way to make it fit. I'm curious what the response was and continues to be to the ideas you're trying to share in the in the education realm and what you see as kind of the biggest barriers to us shifting the way things are happening in schools. Uh, I, well, number one, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, what I find is that the only people who don't respond positively to this way of thinking and this way of helping kids most of the time just doesn't understand the model or doesn't have enough information about it yet. So, um, and the biggest concern in schools about applying the model is the amount of time it takes to solve a problem collaboratively with a kid. Now, what I always point out to schools is a few different things. Number one, if we keep track of the amount of time that we're spending on the kid dealing with him with the problem still unsolved, that is significantly more time than the amount of time it would take to solve the problem collaboratively with him. So 
although most school staff are very concerned about time when they're first learning about the model, by the time they're three or four months into actually learning the model and applying it, nobody's complaining about time anymore. In fact, the familiar refrain is, this model saves time. Um, I think that the biggest obstacle is that this is not the way we've always done it. And most schools have a discipline program that has been set in stone for a very long time. It's the way we've always done it. Um, if, if the way we've always done it, I always say, was working really well, then we wouldn't still be losing kids at an astounding rate. Um, these are statistics that I cite frequently. We uh, expel over 100,000 kids a year from American public schools. We give over 3 million in-school suspensions a year and an additional 3 million out-of-school suspensions a year. We dole out countless dozens of millions of detentions every year. We still hit kids on the butt with a piece of wood to help them do good at school in 19 American states still, and we do that over 200,000 times a year. And that's the way we've always done it. And the fact that we are still doing it is proof positive that it's not working very well at all for the kids who we are primarily doing it to. So the big obstacle is the way we've always done it. Another obstacle is that many school staff have yet to access this information. Um, I find that once people access this information, they start to say to themselves, uh, my goodness, we have been not doing well by a lot of our kids for a very long time. We've got to change our game here. And um, of course, I and my staff at Lives in the Balance are always delighted to help a staff at a school or a facility uh, change the game so that they are treating kids in ways that are a lot more compassionate and a lot more effective. I would say that those are the big obstacles. What we're trying to do now is prove that when you implement CPS in a school, um, you're saving money, both on assessment and on intervention. We have already proven that in the juvenile detention system in the state of Maine, which has been implementing this model for about the last 10 or 12 years. 10 or 12 years ago, there were over 280 kids in juvenile detention in Maine. There are now 80. That's because we assist in helping them reduce their recidivism from about 65 to 70 percent to what it is now, which is around 15 percent. And that represents a significant cost savings because it costs $120,000 a year to have a kid in a bed in juvenile detention in the state of Maine. And it's even more expensive in other places. So when we start talking about that, that's when policymakers and legislators start to listen. We can't keep doing what we've always done, or we're just going to keep losing kids at the rate that we're continuing to lose them. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Those those statistics are just shocking to hear, and... And exciting about the progress that you've seen in Maine. That is really incredible and not surprising, but incredible. And and good luck in continuing to do that. I mean, one of the last schools we were in, Asher's teacher had been trained in CPS. And I was really nervous because it was a new school. And as soon as I found that out, I was so relieved. (laughs) You know what? It's always nice to know that your kid is going to be treated in a way that is compassionate and humane and effective. I think that's what everybody, every parent wants from their kid's teacher. Absolutely. Well, what you were talking about, too, I was checking out your recent work and I saw a trailer for a documentary called The Kids We Lose, which is very much about what you were just uh, talking with us about. Could you tell us about that upcoming documentary? Sure. Um, The the name of the documentary, at least at the moment, it could change, is The Kids We Lose. There's a website for it called thekidswelose.com. It is a project that I am very passionate about. Um, The goal is to show what still gets done to kids here in the year 2017. A lot of it uh, brutal, a lot of it inhumane, a lot of it manhandling. Um, just by mere virtue of the fact that they are behaviorally challenging and that their difficulties are poorly understood and that they are still being treated in ways that are obsolete. But it's also intended to be a very balanced documentary because while it is true that the kids are suffering, other people are suffering too. Their parents are suffering. Their parents often feel blamed for their child's behavioral challenges. Nobody's really paying attention to the fact that these very same parents almost always have well-behaved kids in their home. Uh, We want to be very balanced toward educators. Um, Educators have more initiatives thrown at them than any other profession that I can think of. They are being um, 
there's just very little time in an educator's day to, to, to do the kind of things for kids that teachers have always done. Teachers have always been among the most important socialization agents in our society. But when we throw high stakes testing at them and when we throw zero tolerance policies at them, by the way, the research tells us that zero tolerance policies didn't make things better, they made things worse. Um, then we are asking teachers to handle kids whose needs are not necessarily very well understood in a classroom of 20 to 25 other kids when a lot of those other kids have IEPs and learning issues and some of them have behavioral issues and social issues. So we are really stacking the deck against classroom teachers in schools frequently. Um, we want to be very balanced here. This is not a blaming documentary. It is not uh, looking to make anybody look bad. It's just looking to capture the human element of a system that is so clearly broken. Um, and it's due out in April. We hope we meet that deadline. But um, I think it's going to be shocking to many people what still goes on out there. But if you don't heighten awareness, then nothing happens. And so this is our effort to make sure that people know what's going on out there. Well, it looks fantastic. I I really, it brought tears to my eyes. It was so powerful and I'm so excited about it. We will absolutely do what we can to spread the word. And I'm excited for the change in the conversation that it can spark. And I'm sure that it will. So congratulations and good luck on that project. Thank you. We have a wonderful filmmaker, uh, Lone Wolf Media from South Portland, Maine. This is an Emmy award winning company. So if people get on the uh, the Kids We Lose website, they'll uh, learn about Lone Wolf Media as well. We are really um, have high hopes for this documentary in terms of changing the conversation and heightening awareness about what gets done out there and how hard it is for so many people. And listeners, uh, I will leave links for for all the things we've been talking about, Lives in the Balance website and the Kids We Lose website in the show notes. So you don't have to be scrambling to write these down. Make sure you check them out. And Dr. Green, before we go, I would love if you could just tell us about your most recent book, Raising Human Beings. Can you just quickly tell us what that's about? I know it's aimed at a bit of a different audience, but I'd love to hear about it. It's aimed at all kids, not just those with behavioral challenges. The longer I have worked with kids with behavioral challenges and other kids who we might refer to as less challenging, the less difference I see between them. Um, and people for a very long time have been saying to me, why would you only save the good stuff for a behaviorally challenging kid? Wouldn't you try to treat every kid this way? And the answer, of course, is yes. But there is a very compelling reason to treat every kid this way. And that is, you know, whenever I introduce this, when I'm speaking, I ask the audience if they're a little worried about the human species these days. And of course, uh, almost unanimously, the answer is yes. Um, and I'm not going to go into the reasons that we might be worried about the species these days. But um, what I will say is that there are certain skills that define the better side of human nature, skills like empathy and appreciating how one's behavior is affecting other people and resolving disagreements without conflict and uh, taking another person's perspective and honesty that I think many of us are finding um, in short supply these days. Not, not only in ourselves, but also in our politicians um, and our leaders. Um, and I think we have to get back to teaching those skills and modeling them for our kids and giving them as many opportunities for practice as we possibly can. And it turns out that when you are solving problems collaboratively and proactively, and this is what the research tells us, you are simultaneously teaching the skills that we just covered. Solving 
solving problems collaboratively helps people listen to each other, take each other's concerns into account, come up with solutions that work for both parties. It's not about power. It's about collaboration. I find that power causes conflict, and I find that collaboration causes agreement to break out all over. And I think that we need to start teaching these kids to these skills to our kids as early as possible and never let up. But I also think that we have to model it for them. And so raising human beings has a double meaning. It's not only my beliefs about how we ought to raise our kids. It's about how we caregivers got to raise our game. Uh, and that's what that book is about. That's fantastic. It's generous, fantastic work. And congratulations on that. And I encourage listeners to check that out as well. And I'm going to let you get on with your busy day. You are such a busy man. And I am so grateful for this conversation and for everything that you shared with us today and for taking the time to talk with us. So thank you so much. Always my pleasure. And you are a wonderful interviewer. So it was a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Dr. Green's website, Lives in the Balance, his books, his upcoming documentary, The Kids We Lose, and the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 81. And don't forget to check out my after the show three minute video where I share my three tips for how we've applied Dr. Green's collaborative and proactive solutions model in our family. You'll find a link on the show notes page, or you can go straight to tiltparenting.com slash after the show. If you get value out of this podcast and would like to support this work, there are a couple of easy ways to help. One is to help sponsor the podcast through my Patreon campaign. Patreon is a simple membership platform that allows listeners like you to make a small monthly contribution to fund the show. If you want to help us, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. The other way to help is to be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and just help me spread the word. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.